Luke 21, starting in verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was ordained uh, with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand, and do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. And then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. And this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a, month, a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives." But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with great, with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the, tree, and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dis, uh, dissipation and drunkenness and, and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet, 
And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. If you'd pray with me, Lord, these words that you spoke so long ago, would you help us as we look at them, help us to understand what you meant to those who were standing in the temple hearing you preach on these last few days before you went to the cross? Would you help us to understand how it is we ought to apply these to our lives? Would you help us to see the great promises that you've given us here? What that means for us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, my, uh, my dad, my grandpa, actually both my grandpas, worked in the same factory. My dad still works there. He's probably should be retired, but he says he's got the easiest job in the factory and they pay him good, so he'll just stay a little longer. At any rate, they all worked at the Goodyear factory in Topeka, and you know, in every industry, there's lingo, right? If you work in a particular industry, there's lingo that goes along with that industry. And though I would sit and listen to my dad and my grandpa talk, and they were speaking plainly enough, they were using words that I knew, you know, and yet I was always confused as to what they were talking about. I know what that word means in everyday life, but they weren't, they weren't using it the way that I was used to them using it. They were using it in some sort of like coded message, it seemed like. Acronyms and all sorts of different things. They were using it in a specific way for a specific context. They were using words and phrases in ways I didn't get because it was particular to events, places, and items inside of factory they were familiar with that I was not familiar with. Until one summer in college, I got the great privilege of working at the Goodyear factory. And within a week, everything made sense. Within a week, all the conversations that I had heard and all the words and all these phrases, suddenly it was like I had been given a decoder ring. I could figure it out. It's like, oh, I thought this was some sort of like crazy thing. It's just that. That's all they were talking about the whole time. Things that puzzled me for years began to be much more simple. Well, our passage this morning is called the Olivet Discourse. You can find it in Matthew 24 and Mark's gospel as well. Here it's in Luke 21. And, and Jesus is speaking in this uh, teaching prophetically. And it's tricky because he will, he's going to use what's called apocalyptic language with his first century audience. Now, you need to understand as we approach the text this morning that the factory for Jesus and for his audience is the Old Testament prophets. And if we haven't spent much time in the Old Testament prophets, there's going to be some language that we're going to go, well, okay, I know what that word means, for me in my time and place, but, but why are they using it like that? That doesn't make sense. That's confusing. And I think if we approach the text today, assuming the words and phrases have a meaning that is more in line with uh, perhaps tw a 21st century way 
of understanding with you know, precise scientific descriptions and that sorts of thing, then we may be prone to misunderstanding uh, Jesus' intention for the text, what he's saying, and his intention for the first audience, and Luke's intention in recording this for Theophilus. So let me, let me cut to the chase a little bit. I think, it's my opinion, okay, so yeah, I guess I get to stand up here so you have to deal with that. I think many people in the past few decades especially have have done just that. They've assumed 21st century understanding of some of the words and phrases in this passage. And they've drawn the conclusion, well, what he's saying here, it, it can't possibly have happened yet. Because I understand what these words mean for me today, as I use them, and that can't possibly have happened yet. And so they assume Jesus is often speaking here of things that are still far off for us. Many faithful Christians, even scholars, hold views like this. Many of us, myself included, have probably grown up within church context just assuming that's the case. But I hope to show you that one of the most clear elements of this whole passage, one of the most clear elements of Jesus' discourse here is the question when, when these things will happen. And when we look at when, it leads me to the conclusion that all of these things happened in the past for us, in the future for Jesus' audience, in the future for Luke's audience, and yet in the past, far in the past for us, that all of these things have actually occurred at the siege of Jerusalem, at the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 66 to 70. And that the Old Testament prophets actually will help us to make sense of some of the weird phrases in here that we may not understand very well. And so, if you think, well, that's, Cody, I, I've, I've, I've heard about these kinds of passages and the Olivet Discourse, and, and, I, and, and I've always assumed that Jesus is talking about something that's going to happen at the very, very end of days, at the, the, the last moments that the world exists. I want you to keep an open mind with me for a second that perhaps there may be something here that you've misunderstood or some assumptions that we've made we just didn't realize. Perhaps there might be a different way of understanding what Jesus is saying, a way that people in the history of the church um, have often understood Jesus' words, and though even if in the last couple of generations that's been a less popular way of understanding it. So, this sermon is going to be a little different because I'm going to have to do a little more explaining, a little more explaining with the, 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 the prophetic language. But I'm going to first attempt to explain the prophecy of Jerusalem's destruction. So we'll spend a little more time there than usual. Nerds are going to love it. Those of you who aren't nerds, you know, bear with us nerds for a second, okay? And then, you know, if you get real bored, just jump back in with us on point two, all right? I'm going to give the purpose of Jerusalem's destruction. This is going to help us see why practically it matters that we don't skip over what's already happened before we get to what will happen. And then finally, I'm going to explain the the pertinence of Jerusalem's destruction. The applications will be very similar to those people who hold a future view of this passage, but I think if we understand it rightly, it adds it adds something to 
the applications. It adds a degree of assurance, of confidence for us in Christ and what he will do. Okay, so that is where we are going. The prophecy of Jerusalem's destruction. There are two major questions right off the beginning. What is Jesus talking about and when is he talking about it happening? And the conversation starts in verse 5, right, with people admiring the physical temple, all the noble stones, all the, the decorations and everything that the temple was in that day as Jesus is there teaching day in and day out for this week. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, the temple, the city of Jerusalem, the Levitical system, sacrifices and offerings, and the people who followed it, the Jewish people who hold to it, are often used interchangeably. So the general what that we're referring to is everything that is wrapped up in the religious system of the temple and everything that goes along with it. Now, the immediate question here in verse 7, if you look there, it says, is is when? When will this happen and, and what will be the signs of it? And I think it's here, as I said, we, we have a critical misstep oftentimes. When we start looking at the descriptions of the signs first, and then, based on our understanding of what those signs must be by our own assumptions, then we decide the when, based on those conclusions. But in fact, we don't have to calculate the when based on our understanding of the signs. Jesus actually tells us the when, right in the passage, explicitly. It's not something that we have to assume or It's not something that's implied that we have to, you know, add up or discover. Jesus tells us very explicitly the when. Drop down with me toward the end of the passage, Jesus' conclusion in verse 32. What does it say? He says, this generation, this generation will not pass away until all this has taken place. Now, there have been some who have tried to do some Greek gymnastics with the word generation, and, but, but re, the reality is, is this is about as bulletproof as anything in, in, in translation. He is referring to the people who are alive at that time, when he is there standing in the temple speaking. And a generation would have been understood to be 40 years. And so the plain reading of the text is this, that all of these things that he is describing as he's giving this discourse that I just read will happen within 40 years of that time around AD 30. So coincidentally, by AD 70. The burden of proof then would be on anyone who would say that any specific event that Jesus has just described did not happen within those 40 years. It would the burden of proof would be on that person to prove that, that for some reason Jesus is saying, well, except for that, or except for that, that will happen at a different time. Because we find both at the end in verse 32, this generation, and also at the beginning, he says, these things are about, or they ask, when are these things about to take place? And he And he says, when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. So he's saying, look, it's going to happen soon, not tomorrow, but within this generation. Now, I want to give you a general overview of the events, the signs, and I want to look at a few of the trickier bits in more detail before we move to the purpose of them. 
and how to apply them for our lives. Verses 8 and 9, Jesus warns that audience against people saying that they are the Messiah or that, you know, this is about, like, very, very imminently going to happen. The things he is about to describe must first happen and then the end, he says. And we hear the word end, and because of the way that people have used it, the way people have talked about this passage, we assume that end means the end end, right? Like the very end. You know, because we have so many, you know, uh, post-apocalyptic movies, you know, where the world is going to be blown up, we just assume the end is like the end of all existence. But in context, what is Jesus talking about? He's answering a question about the temple. He said that the stones are going to be thrown down off of each other. So what end is he talking about here? He's talking about the end of the temple, the stones, the offerings, the system. These things that must first take place can be divided into two main sets. First, in verses 10 through 19, we find what I'm calling the precursors to destruction. And then there's a turn in verse 20 when he says, but when you see Jerusalem... Verse 20 through 28 will be the presence of destruction. So there's some things that need to happen first. And then there's a shift. And then, and then the destruction is imminent. It's, it, is, it is happening. Okay? Now, most have agreed that verses 10 through 19 refer to the time after Jesus' ascension and before the destruction of Jerusalem. Most, most commentators that you read, most people who, who scholars will agree, yeah, that's, that's what that's talking about. 10 through 19 the time between Jesus' ascension and the destruction of Jerusalem. We could turn to the pages of Acts. Luke wrote Acts as well, and we can see the kind of persecution that's there described at the hands of the Jewish leaders and at the hands of the Roman officials. And we can read about how the Holy Spirit spoke through the, the, the Christians as they proclaimed the gospel. And we can read about how they were hated. We can read about how some were put to death. We can read about how, even though they were put to death, that life is more than just having a pulse. And through their endurance in Christ, what Jesus said is truly true, that they will not lose their life, but they will gain it. We can read about that there. But as we move into verses 20 through 24, still, still most agree that this is describing things that describing the actual destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And, and historians um, of the day, like Eusebius and Josephus, record this. In AD 66, something called the Jewish Revolt happened. And a Roman general put Jerusalem under siege in the summer of 66. So, summer of 66, you know, Jerusalem, I don't know, you can make a song about it or something. Eusebius says that Christians saw this siege as a sign that what Jesus said was coming to be. So you can imagine it's AD, summer of 66, you've read the gospel of Luke, right? Because Luke wrote this. It's distributed amongst the church. Suddenly Jerusalem's under siege and you go, Luke, Luke said in his gospel that Jesus said this. It's happening. And so many of the Christians believed that. But two months into the siege, for an unknown reason, the army withdrew. And Jewish zealots took that, not believing the scriptures, not believing what Jesus said, took that as a sign that God's hand was with them, pursued and slaughtered this small army north of Jerusalem, about 10 miles north of Jerusalem. 
They came back to Jerusalem and people celebrated them. And most of the Jews believed the zealots were, you know, the zealots got it right. They're the people that God's hand is, is with. And so we need to follow them. But the Christians didn't think that. We can find recorded there that many of the Christians fled the city at that time. Once the siege stopped, they got out of the city. They did what Jesus said. They went to the hills, the mountains. They left Judea. Well, a couple months later, late in AD 66, Vespasian came with a, a real army. And he came to stop the revolt. And as we have recorded in the histories, Josephus and others, he laid waste to the entire area, going up and down Judea, killing, murdering, destroying. In one place, Josephus records that the, the Jordan River ran red with blood. It was horrific. And so people in the area, fled to the city, thinking it would keep them safe within the walls. They fled to Jerusalem, and the the population of Jerusalem swelled to over a million people. So all these people are stuffed in Jerusalem, and what do you think happened? Vespasian's army did not leave. It surrounded Jerusalem, and even after Vespasian became himself Caesar, the siege continued until AD 70, And inside the city, for those few years, the most unspeakable horrors began happening, just as the Bible said they would happen, as people starved to death. Eventually, they broke through and utterly destroyed the temple. And all who trusted Jesus' words were saved because they left the city, and all those who did not perished. In fact, this prophecy from Luke, lines up so well with the the other historical data that we have that non-Christian scholars claim that Luke must have written his gospel after AD 70 because it's just too true to the point of what happened. So what Jesus said happened. Now in verses 25 to 28, here's where people begin to assume that we've had a shift to what must be future for us. And this is where my task becomes a little more difficult. And so here's the part where, you know, if you like this sort of thing and you're a nerd, you might find this interesting and you can do some searching the scriptures yourself um, and testing what I'm about to say. And if you don't, well, just, you know, stick, stick with me for a few minutes here and then we'll then jump back on, on ramp back on. So, okay, I want to give you a few big questions from this text, a few questions you might have, things in, particularly in verses 25 through 28. First, What about signs in the sun, moon, and stars? It says in verse 25, there there is these signs in the sun and moon and stars. That that sounds pretty, you know, cosmic, right? In the Old Testament, these cosmic forces often related to earthly powers. There was a relationship between the sun, moon, and stars. Think about Genesis and Joseph's dream of the sun, moon, and stars bowing down. Oftentimes, the sun, moon, and stars related to human earthly powers. And this is the same kind of sun, moon imagery that's used for God's judgment in passages like Isaiah 13.10, 34.4, Ezekiel 32.7, 
and Amos 8 9. I'm not going to read those, but you are more than happy to check those out. Later, this is a, it's a similar imagery that's repeated throughout the prophets. I will share one. I think Jesus here is most clearly alluding to Joel 2.10, where it says, The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun, moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Now, this is in the midst of a prophecy that's filled with military language. Where Zion, it says in verse 1, should sound an alarm, quote, for the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is always the day of his judgment, right? Someone may grant me, okay, yeah, sure, Joel is talking about Jesus' coming, but it's his second coming, okay? But I would challenge you, Peter, in Acts 2, 19 and 20, quotes Joel 2, and he says, this happened right now. In Jesus's, because of Jesus' first coming. So Joel 2, Peter says, according to Peter, is fulfilled in Jesus' first coming. And he quotes there similar descriptions, like Joel 2, 31, the sun is darkened, the moon turns to blood. So we're talking about the judgment on Jerusalem, which caps off Jesus' first coming, Jesus' work in his first coming. Jesus' work on earth brought the greatest shift in the order of the cosmos, in the order of everything, seen and unseen, all the powers. When, when God himself dies and rises from the dead, something changes, right? Something massive changes, something that we can't even see or understand completely. The very fabric of the universe changes in the most significant way that it has since the fall of mankind. It's not just... It's not just a God coming out of the grave. I mean, it's that, but it's so much more that happens because of that. Second, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. I think this is a continuation, a little bit of the last point. There are a few Old Testament places where this kind of language is used. One of the key ones is Haggai 2, where this prophecy, there is a prophecy of the coming glory of the temple there in chapter 2. No coincidence, right? Here he's in the temple, talking about the temple, and he is quoting a passage about the coming glory of the temple. But he says there, it says there, the prophet says, where God's, it, it's where God's spirit will remain. That the, the temple is where God's spirit will remain in verse 5 of chapter 2. And remain there according to God's covenant. What covenant? This new covenant through Christ's blood. And it says there, quote, I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, a glory greater than before. Before what? Very similar to Joel's prophecy. There's the sending of the Spirit, the preaching of the gospel to all nations, the filling of God's temple, his church, for, with, with all of those far and wide from all nations. Again, Peter, just as Peter quoted Joel 2, here, this prophecy is about the results of Christ's first coming. That because he came, because he lived, because he died, that the people from all over, that the treasures of all nations will come into God's house finally. Can you imagine Jesus standing in the court of the Gentiles in the temple, preaching this, referring to these prophecies, 
Third, the Son of Man coming in a cloud. This is a tricky one. We hear Son of Man coming and we think of one thing right away, but the question we have to ask ourselves is this, where is the Son of Man coming? Just, just think for a second, where is the Son of Man coming to? Our immediate head goes, well, he's, he's got to be coming to earth, right? Well, this quote is a reference from Daniel 7, 13. And what does it say there? It says, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came where? To the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given, to the son of man was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. He, the son of man, Jesus Christ, is actually coming to the ancient of days, the father, to be enthroned by the father over his kingdom. The destruction of Jerusalem is not only a sign that the old powers are struck down, but it is foremost a sign that Jesus is on his throne. That if Jesus can say, this city that has stood, that no one can touch, will be destroyed within this generation, that when it was destroyed, everyone turned and went, oh my goodness, he really is king. He really is king. He did it. Just as the nobleman went to receive his kingdom in Luke 19, so the Son of Man will receive his kingdom. And the sign of what happened is the judgment on the old capital. And the coming in of a new Jerusalem, which Hebrews describes as the church. Revelation describes as the church, his people. Fourth, what does your redemption is drawing near mean? Certainly, your redemption is drawing near. This has to have something to do with Jesus coming back and like taking us away and saving us from all this chaos that's in the world. And there really is chaos in the world, am I right? But in context, to those who Jesus is talking to, what is, what is it that they need to be redeemed from? Do you remember in verse 12 what Jesus was talking about? That they would be facing persecutions from Jewish authorities facing persecutions from Roman authorities for decades, for 40 years, right there in Jerusalem. We read about it in the book of Acts. No. We can't take verse 28 as referring to the second coming. We can't, we can't do that at all, actually, because Jesus here clearly says when these things take place, and if he's talking about the second coming, that creates a contradiction, does it not? Because Jesus already told us a couple of chapters ago that his second coming, when he was talking about his second coming, that his second coming will happen like the days of Noah and Lot without any immediate warning sign. So how could he say that there? And then here say, no, there's going to be warning. Here's the warning signs. No, he has to be talking about something different here. Or else Jesus is contradicting himself. Finally, I'll give you a one bonus one. There is a confusion, I think, and, and, and this is a tricky one around the world. The word earth, especially in verse 35, it says the whole 
earth. Come, come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. And I think this is an issue, a trans, I would argue that this is a translation issue. The Greek word there is gi, and it can be translated earth, or it's often translated land, depending on the, and, and whichever it's translated as, it depends on the context. And so ESV, you know, the ESV translators translated earth because they're assuming here that Jesus is, t- is talking about the second coming. So they say, well, the, the context is the second coming, so it must be the whole earth. Well, if the context isn't the second coming, it should be the whole, the whole land. Well, what land then? Do we have something in the text that describes a particular land? Well, I think actually we do. The same word is used back in verse 23. It says there, great distress upon the earth, gi, and wrath against this people. It's the earth or the land that this people are where this people are. And in verses 20 and 21, it tells us exactly where and who those people are, Jerusalem and the area of Judea around it. And so he's saying, no, this is going to happen upon the face of this whole area, this all of Judea and Jerusalem. And in fact, that's exactly what happened in AD 66 through 70. That's why Christians were being warned to flee not only out of Jerusalem, but out of Judea completely to the mountains, verse 35. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of that whole land. So I'm not sure if I've answered every question. And certainly smart people have responses to my understanding of the text here. But I hope I at least convinced you that that it is a viable option to take Jesus' words here as things happening completely in AD 70. If not, hopefully sold you that it might be the best understanding of the text here. But now we move on to motive. And so if you got lost somewhere in all those tricky words and passages, come back to, to us, okay? Why would God destroy Jerusalem, you might ask? Well, why would he do that? How could it be? A, that seems like a, a bad idea. I want to give you three reasons briefly why he would do that. With the first, to eliminate the idolatrous system. One of Luke's objectives has been to show that Christianity is true Judaism. That true Judaism is following Christ as Messiah. And this is why he quotes the Old Testament so much throughout the book. But what comes of the old system then? The problem in Jesus' day was not that the system, when Jesus was alive and on the earth, when he's standing there in the temple right then, the problem wasn't that behind him sacrifices were happening. That actually was supposed to continue to happen at that point until Christ was sacrificed, right? The problem was that many had ceased to be obedient to that law by faith. They believed that that just because, purely because they were Jewish or purely because they made the sacrifices, that they in some way were earning their place before God as people of God. And that was never, from the very beginning, how it was supposed to work. Abraham was called by God and what was accounted to him as righteousness? It's faith. Not anything he did. Noah, what was counted to him as righteousness? His faith. Not anything he did. So they did these actions but it was not worship of the true God because what they were really worshiping was themselves. Their own works. It did not point them to the Messiah or to trust in him. And so when Jesus was alive, they missed that Jesus was the Messiah. 
So during Jesus' life, there was a right way and a wrong way to worship in the temple. A right way by faith and a wrong way by not faith. But once Christ died and rose from the dead, there was no right way to continue those sacrifices. One sacrifice had happened for good. Faith was no longer looking forward. Now it was looking backward, even if it was backward just one day. You remember that one of the key ideas throughout Jesus' discourse here in the temple from from his triumphal entry until now has been this idea of stones throughout Jesus' temple teaching. He's been talking about it. John the Baptist said at the very beginning of Luke that God could raise up stones as children for Abraham. And Jesus refers to himself as the cornerstone, just as the prophets referred to him as. And later in the New Testament, we build, you know, the New Testament writers build on this, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple, that God's presence is with us through Christ. And now, as he is the cornerstone of a new temple, God's people, that temple is filled with his spirit. And that on that cornerstone, Christian by Christian, stone by stone, God is building a new temple in Christ by faith that his presence dwells in. His church, friends, you, me, us. And so what Abraham looked forward to, Hebrews eleven ten, to which all Christians have already come, Hebrews 12, 22, is that new Jerusalem, God's people, his church. What happens then if the temple continues to stand, friends? If the sacrifices continued, if God just allowed it to carry on, if those seen as leaders for God continue to lead people away from the fulfillment of all God's plans rather than towards it, what would happen then? It would perpetuate idolatry. Steal God's glory. Deceive the nations rather than bring them into his true temple. God had to eliminate the structure, the system, and all the proponents. And while we may see the destruction of a generation, God sees the liberation of countless generations for 2,000 years. You might ask, well, then why would wait, why wait 40 years? Why didn't he do it? Just He rose from the dead and the temple just fell down. Why not do it that way? Because we have a God who's merciful and patient, who bears with us, who takes 40 years and sends countless apostles allows his own people who love him to die as they shared the gospel in order that someone else may be saved. That's the kind of God we have. Second, not only, not only to eliminate the idolatrous system, but also to illustrate that Jesus is enthroned. I said this earlier, but this was a sign that Jesus had really been enthroned. When Theophilus is being persecuted for his faith, and as he reads this this gospel and he fears for his life, Luke wants him to know Jesus is on the throne. Yes, these terrible things are happening to you, and and yes, uh, someone may come into your house and take you to prison right now and put you before the synagogue or put you before an official or a judge, but Jesus is truly on the throne. When the early Christians were questioned, but your Messiah died. Everyone knows he died on the cross. How could he possibly be God? How could he possibly be Lord? How could he possibly be king? One of their top apologetics in the first century, in the, hundred, in, in the second century, I guess, hundreds, AD, 
was look at what happened to Jerusalem, the Jerusalem who killed him. How could a city like that have fallen if God was not against it? And when we face troubles of many kinds, why should it not give us the same reassurance that he who is on the throne is in control and he is the final judge of all things? And yes, people may come against us and they may persecute us and they may do all sorts of things to us, but God will win and he will judge. When you criticize, when you're persecuted for righteousness sake, for Christ's sake, God will judge between you and that person. We don't need to. Finally, to anticipate that Jesus will return in judgment. You might say, well, Cody, I thought you said this whole thing was about his first coming, about AD 70. It's not about his second coming. But I think the point here is that because Jesus judged then, we can have confidence that he will judge in the end. Because Jesus took care of Jerusalem and those in his generation who rejected him, he will take care of all of those who reject him in the history of the world. And because he takes care of his people, then we can know that if we abide by his warnings, even if in the moment they don't make sense, and I am sure that in AD 66, when a bunch of Christians were leaving the city, leaving their nice warm little houses, you know, in Jerusalem, where they lived their whole life, that there were a lot of people who said, you are ridiculous. That is silly. You can go live in the caves. They say, yeah, but my Savior said, do this. And so when people ridicule us, for doing what we, for applying God's word to our life, right? People say, that's silly. We can know, no. My Savior said, do this. It'll work out. You just wait and see. So that's the purpose. And finally, the pertinence of Jerusalem's destruction And I think here we find three problems, three responses, and three promises. First, it encourages us to bear witness, right? In verses 10 through 19, the problem is that during this time, Jesus, uh, before Jesus would come on uh, judgment on Jerusalem, Christians would face really harsh persecution. And the response that Jesus gives is this, bear witness. Hey, you're going to be persecuted, here's what you do, bear witness. Share the gospel. First, because many would be saved from the judgment to come by that witness. Second, because those who reject would then be without an an excuse when that judgment came. Third, I would say this, the same is true for Christians today. Christ will return in judgment. And our response to persecution ought to be the same. Bear witness. It's difficult. It's difficult to do so when you face persecution. But remember, some will be saved as you do so. And some will then be without excuse 
And the promise is twofold. He gives two promises here. First, Jesus will give wisdom, he says. We know that later he will explain this as the gift of the Spirit within us, right? Second, he says that Jesus will be with us. He'll give us wisdom and he'll be with us to the end. By your endurance, it says, you will gain your lives. And these promises, they're just the promises of the Great Commission, are they not? Wait for the Spirit. And I will be with you always to the very end of the age because I have all authority in heaven and on earth. All he's doing is giving the great commission before he gives the great commission. These promises are true for us. Jesus will, he, he is with you and his, his spirit is with you. He will give you wisdom. You, you, you're in a, in a situation and you're facing persecution. Someone's ridiculing you. You go, ah, I want to bear witness. What am I going to say? You, you begin to get all clammed up. I get all clammed up. Don't worry. Don't worry about it. You leave that interaction, you think, oh, I'm such an idiot. Why did I say that? I should have said this instead. Don't worry about it. It's not you, it's the Holy Spirit does the work. Just bear witness. Know that he'll be with you. Second, we're warned to flee idolatry The problem in verses 20 to 28 is that this judgment comes from God himself. You understand it's not Satan, it's not someone else, it's not even the Romans that this judgment is coming from. It's from God, it says. The response is to flee idolatry. Why? Well, sure, it would be Roman armies, but God is the primary actor here. And he uses those armies to bring about his judgment. The issue then for us is not, and for them, is not, it's not military defenses. The issue is spiritual defenses. We do the same thing, trusting in the strength of man rather than fearing God, do we not? Medicating ourselves when we are in difficult times with idols rather than turning to Christ for our strength. Worshiping the idols of man rather than serving God. The promise, friends, is this. God will deliver his people. You don't need to flee to idols because God will deliver his people every time. Yes, some died physically, yet they were saved eternally. But, but don't miss this, that, that many were not only saved eternally, but they actually were saved physically. Hordes of Christians did not die, did not suffer the most horrible hunger and devastation inside of the walls of Jerusalem because they listened to Jesus' commands. Friends, when you don't listen to Jesus' commands and you live how you want instead and you follow idols of the world instead, you only bring suffering on yourself. You think you're safe. You think you're giving yourself security in the walls of Jerusalem, but you are dooming yourself. And when you follow Christ, you think, oh man, this is going to be harder. But in fact, you are actually saving yourself from much greater pain. You should avoid idolatry. Finally, it challenges us to stay vigilant. Verses 29 through 36. The problem here is that the reality of persecution and coming judgment might cause people to either be overwhelmed by the issues, right? Weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness, so stressed about what's happening that we have to medicate ourselves in our everyday life, whether by alcohol or some other method, right? Or if we don't 
get overwhelmed by the issues, we ignore the issues. Weighed down with the cares of this life, too wrapped up in the day-to-day pleasures that we go on eating and drinking and marrying and being purposefully blind to what God is and what he'll do. Is this not the same thing that we do today? So often we're either overwhelmed by the issues that are going around, we're so anxious and overwhelmed, or we just say, well, I can't, I can't deal with that, so I'm just going to ignore them, and I'm just going to eat, drink, and be merry, and, and pretend like nothing is going on in the world that's terrible. But this should not be the case for Christians. It doesn't have to be. We can stay vigilant. We can watch ourselves, guard our hearts from these two ditches. We can stay awake, living rightly. We can pray in order that we'd have strength to escape sin and avoid the consequences of it. And the promise here is this, that Jesus' word and his rule lasts forever. Friends, the goal is to stand before the Son of Man. Not only on that day, but every day. To live as if before the face of God. Those who attempt to stand in rebellion will kneel on that day, and those who kneel in submission, Christ will cause to stand. That's what he promises. And the destruction of Jerusalem tells us, reassures us that's true. So, Jesus in the course of human history won the greatest victory, defeated sin, defeated death, defeated Satan, And in the decades and centuries um, after, when people said, could crucified Jesus truly be king? The response was, not one stone is still on another in Jerusalem. Hebrews 2 tells us, even if we don't see it fully right now, all things are in subjection to Jesus. He is subduing every enemy until at last death will be subdued when he returns. Jesus intends to reassure us of these things by bringing judgment on the most significant city in human history, his own city, Jerusalem. And one day, he will bring judgment on all his world. But the bottom line is, for the church, on that day, and on every day, until then, as we face the challenges that we face, since Jesus is victorious, we have hope to stand, friends. We have hope to stand.